Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the A Word of Good podcast. My guest today is Jeremy Beamond. Jeremy is the co-founder of Nudge Global, a UK financial well-being company. For more than 10 years, Jeremy was the director at Thompson's Online Benefits, a global employee benefits provider. It was during this time that Jeremy and his co-founder Tim Perkins started to realise the demand for more workplace financial well-being and so set up Nudge Global in 2013. For the last six years, Nudge has been helping hundreds of thousands of employees with their financial well-being at organisations like Samsung, Virgin Atlantic, Heineken, Mercedes-Benz, Nando's and PayPal. Nudge believe in financial well-being. They believe that when people are in control of their money, they're in control of their lives. And if they can help employees make their salaries or wages go further, they can make sure that time spent working is time spent well. Nudge believe that the combination of education and technology can do this. Please welcome my guest today, Jeremy Beamont. Hi, Jeremy. How are you today? Morning, Kevin. Really well, thanks. And you? Very good. Thank you. Um, so thanks very much for taking the time to get involved in uh, the podcast. Um, huge amounts of what you've done in the past and what you continue to do uh, at Nudge Global at the moment is around Nudge Theory. So just for any of our listeners that aren't familiar with that, can you just give us an overview of kind of what is Nudge Theory and how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. So Nudge Theory is a school of behavioral science, which shows that positive reinforcement and indirect suggestions can uh, positively influence the behavior and decision making of groups or people. So it's built on the truth, the premise uh, that we as human beings hate being told what to do. So you must pay more into your pension. And in fact, we actually rebel against it but we can influence what people do through how our brains work. So this uh, school of behavioral science was made famous by two guys, Baylor and Sunstein from the University of Chicago. And there's a bunch of really interesting stuff that they uh, talk about that that really back this up. So in our world, uh, we use a number of these kind of inbuilt cognitive biases that that human beings have in order to get people to change their behaviours. So using that example of uh, you must pay more into your pension, people don't do that. But you can use something called confidence bias by way of example. So the kind of classic study of this is that you put 100 people into a room and you ask them in an anonymous Um, question, you know, so they're not saying in front of people, but right, look around this room, and are you above or below average intelligence? And about 80% of people will say that they're above average intelligence. The reason why human beings are built like that is that ultimately, you know, the world is a dark and dangerous place, and we need to be confident, otherwise we just stay in our houses all day, we wouldn't go out and, and, and get amongst it. But you can use that in order to influence, in that example, pension contributions, how much people pay in. So what you could do in that example is give people uh, a people like you comparison of people like you pay X into their uh, pension plan. And because of that confidence bias, 80% of people will want to beat that benchmark and as a consequence pay more 
than the average into the pension plan. And we can see through payroll that actually that works, that people are more likely to pay in. So there's a whole bunch of other examples of using that, things like situational bias, um, confidence bias, rewarding behaviour and so forth. And that social proof piece is quite interesting, isn't it? Because I think won't, you know, earlier in the podcast, we talked to um, Dr. Andrew McFall from King's College London. And part of what we were talking about in that discussion was how emotive people are about their money um, and how actually the perception that they are doing better at something than their peers or their friends or their family is kind of what really spurred people on to actually make a difference in their lives. So it wasn't necessarily about how much do I need to save to live comfortably? It's am I doing better than everyone else? Um, and I guess you kind of see that yeah, with some so popular apps like ClearScore, you know, they give you your credit score, but they also give you a credit score for your area so you can see how you're doing to the people that live around you. Yeah, that, that's right. And and also different people will react in different ways. So one of the kind of interesting things that, that we're looking at um, for, for 2020 is how you can really understand who people are and what their motivations are. So, for example, there are some people who are really influenced by being social. So the big thrill that they get out of um, out of learning more is not the learning for themselves, but the passing it on to their loved ones. That's the bit that really reinforces why it's a good thing for them. Whereas there are other people who need gratification to do it. So, you know, call it wellness points or uh, badges or, or, or whatever it might be. They're the, the people who they need to see that progress in order to keep them coming back and, and being better. So all of us are, are very different uh, based upon our particular circumstances in the cognitive biases that we can, the kind of triggers that we can push in order to get them to actually take action and change behavior. Excellent. And so your solution in particular, so I think um, nudge theory has kind of embedded itself in society in a number of different ways. And there's some great examples of how it's affected kind of consumer behavior and all sorts of things. Um, and I think there's also quite a few examples out there that isn't really nudge theory. It's just communicating to people um, frequently. Um, so with your solution in particular at Nudge Global, um, does it really make a difference? And have you seen that making a difference to people's lives? So I, I just wanted to make one, one point there, actually. It's sort of um, when, when you were talking, something came into my mind, and that, and that is, you know, uh, we often get asked, right, you know, this kind of influencing uh, behaviour, is it a good thing? And what we see is that a nudge is something that's done from the right place. It's something that you're trying to make a positive change, which is different to, say, a credit card company who use some of these techniques like uh, sending you uh, an application just around your birthday, for example. Um, the, the key difference is that we call something that's positive uh, a nudge and something that's being used negatively. And in our view, we call that a sludge. Um, so there is you know, a key difference there, there b b between them. As far as it actually kind of proving that, that it works, there are quite a few examples. So, for example, one of our clients are Siemens, who are a big engineering company. They've got about 14,000 people in the UK. And some work that we did with them uh, won the WSB Awards, actually, uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, where they recognised that they had this 
big, big problem where people were not saving enough in a defined contribution environment for, for their retirements. And actually, what they were looking at was a slow motion car crash happening 15, 20 years time when people weren't going to be able to afford to retire when they and the company expected them to. That was going to create all kinds of problems like you know blocking talent pipeline uh, the cost of benefits was going to be exponentially increasing over time and so we undertook some work with them called project pearl where we created these 28 personas uh, based upon people's uh, age earnings contribution structure and as a consequence of that work actually people are now paying seven million pounds a year extra into their uh, pension plans and their member outcomes uh, have been transformed. So there's quite a lot of those evidence pieces across clients where as a consequence of using this technique, people are more likely to take part in bonus and salary sacrifice, which also creates return on investment opportunities, more likely to make active benefit selections and um, more likely to have an emergency savings buffer. So yeah, there's quite a few evidence pieces out there. And with benefits in particular, your solution seems to have really resonated with reward and benefits leaders in particular. Um, why do you think it seems that responsibility for financial well-being at work has landed on that area of the business? Yeah, um, so well, pay and benefits, um, they're the largest contributor to, to most people's income. And I think okay, as a consequence of that, it's natural that it would fit into that area. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed, and you know, you and I have been in the industry about the same amount of time, is this growth in specialist wellbeing um, representatives within organisations. So we are seeing in some companies that, that these wellbeing specialists are, are are taking on the mantle. And actually, also what we're finding is that senior leaders are actually taking more of an interest. So, for example, um, there's a guy, great guy called Dave Dyson, who's the CEO at Three, uh, the mobile company, and he has taken personal responsibility for the well-being of of uh, his people there. So, although you're absolutely spot on, I think the reward and, and benefits are, without doubt, in the vast majority of cases, the people who are in charge and responsible for this. We're seeing also a lot more resonance with the more senior um, C-suite people in the organisation as well. Interesting. I think you know. I think one of the things I'm quite frequently surprised about with all the talks I do around financial well-being is how frequently financial well-being still isn't included in overall well-being strategies um certainly not as much as i would have expected um and i think it seems like for most hr and kind of reward people it's still appearing like it's a little bit more paternalistic than they'd like to be in any other areas of their well-being um and i think that's probably part to do with the fact that we obviously still have a stigma attached to money. So people's attitude is, you know, actually helping people with their money situation. Does that feel like a step too far? Does that feel like I'm intruding too much? Um, and it's come out in a couple of talks I've done in the last few weeks where people realize there's a problem, but they're not exactly sure whether they can help. How have you kind of un overcome that when you've been um, uh, talking to potential customers about Nudge? 
Yeah, it, it's um, it, it is a gross error. So you know, we cast our minds back to, to benefit management in kind of 2007, 2008, where everyone had been talking about it for years, and then all of a sudden, everyone started doing it, and we started getting RFPs um, through through the, the uh, through the door. Then you know, a similar thing is now happening with financial well-being, where we've had to be knocking on quite a lot of doors to kind of spread the good word over the last few years, lots of talk about it. But actually now all of a sudden we are getting those RFPs through. And I think that that's been a real breakthrough moment where it has become, um, I guess, a standard part of, of most packages. I also think that, the, you know, exactly as, as with Flex, there are those innovators who are the first to market. So the companies that we were talking to and who were implementing maybe two or three years ago were the companies that had invested in having a reward brand, uh, maybe a well-being specialist, uh, benefit management system. Whereas now, actually, quite interestingly, the companies who are now uh, coming on board, they're not those um, real innovators. They're actually what we would call the early majority, which is the companies who are a bit more traditional, maybe, you know, would just sat back, mm, you know, let's have a look at this, you know, let's really understand the market, let's scrutinize it, you know, are these guys over here, are they what they appear to be? Mm, right, I need to understand from some colleagues, has this worked? And it's those people who are now coming out and and um, and implementing. So yeah, that's quite an exciting thing for us. I think. I, I think to follow on from that, we're, we're also we both. I guess we both would have seen this, but you're starting to see people realise it's an issue in an organisation that they didn't think it would be an issue in. So, you know, I've spent time and spoken to lots of um, financial services, uh, legal sector, you know, the types of companies where you have what you'd expect to have well-paid and um, pretty well-versed in finances um, employees. Um, but actually what we're starting to see is actually these these problems to do with kind of financial literacy and how people manage money don't discriminate against somebody's upbringing and indeed how much they earn. Um, and I think some of your research has pointed to that as well, hasn't it? That, you know, it doesn't really matter what your earnings are. People are still struggling with making the right decisions. Yeah, so a wise person uh, once said to me, it's not what you earn, it's what you spend, uh, which I think is absolutely true. And and it's it's really interesting you said that. So a few years ago when we um, did, did some research into this, the one, we, we did some questions both to employers and then to employees. And what came out that, that we thought was quite interesting was the enormous mismatch at that time between um, you said to employers, do you think your people are struggling? And quite a lot of them were saying no. And then you asked the employees and a huge proportion were saying yes. So I think it's taken quite a while for that to kind of permeate through. I, I also think that, that companies can suffer, you know, when, when we go back to nudge theory, um, there's something called the halo effect, which is where people make an assumption that because they know something or they're okay, that everyone else knows that and uh, and, and is okay as well. And I think that, that companies probably suffered from that because 
you know, kind of big, big, big macro level uh, after the financial crisis, companies were still doing really well. But what they were doing was stockpiling cash uh, rather than investing. So you had all of these big corporates who had these enormous stockpiles of, of cash that they were sitting on. So they felt like they were pretty good. But meanwhile, the people who were working for them, they weren't getting pay rises. Um, and actually, the over time, the money that they had was less in real terms because of uh, the eroding effects of inflation than, than they previously had. So there was this big mismatch between the corporate identity and and the people who are working for them. Um, but I think that that's becoming, coming out now and becoming more balanced. So companies are holding their hand up and saying, you know what, we recognize that actually the well-being of our people not only is our responsibility, but it's also good for us because having happier, more productive people who aren't stressed out of their minds about stuff, um, it is good for, for the company too. Absolutely. I think uh, um, some of the talks I've done recently have been focused in, uh, in almost entirely on employer branding and well-being. So actually talking to potential candidates about how much you care and how much you will support their well-being when life gets tough seems to be starting to become a really big differentiator in a time when it's obviously proving quite difficult to, to hire the right people. Um, I just want to talk a little bit as well about the financial well-being industry kind of as a concept. So, you know, you and I have worked in benefits for many years and we've seen this industry appear from nowhere and most of the major players kind of who have a service or a product to sell in this arena have only been around for the last couple of years and are starting to make obviously a really big impact on the market. Um, something that's already come up in this podcast when we talked to um, Eric Porter from the Money Charity and uh, Robin Powler, financial journalist, is the idea that there's a lot of product push. So um, it, it gets taught to me quite a lot. There was an article written about it in Forbes magazine. There was an article written about it in Employee Benefits magazine about do is financial well-being an opportunity for us to just open our doors for people to come in and sell something and that seems to be a really growing concern for some of the hr people that i speak with do you think that's something we unnecessarily need to be concerning ourselves about well i i think the the financial well-being just sounds really nice doesn't it it's just such a kind of lovely thought that, that actually a lot of companies are just pinning that on their website we're a financial well-being company um and and actually probably the truth is nearer that they are a product distribution organization who are there to profit based upon whether people take up their their products um so, so that's not to say that those products that are out there are bad things but i think that there needs to be more awareness amongst the hr community of what the motivating factors and the business models of the organizations are so i i think that people are becoming more aware of that uh, which is a good thing and i guess that's probably part and parcel of the fact that you know workplace well-being has obviously started to get quite rightly the attention it deserved and people are taking it seriously as you said um and that means that uh, the word well-being has become a very marketable term um you know we're seeing anything with a slight impact on how we feel seems to be a well-being product now whether that's uh, removing a small amount of stress or just making you feel a bit happier somebody's slapping the word well-being on um and well-being conferences are appearing from kind of nowhere and obviously they're full of providers with different uh with different solutions um 
It, it is becoming more. It is becoming so um, used, isn't it? So, for example, even the Office of National Statistics now have a national financial well-being um, measure. The government talk about well-being, and and as a consequence, you know, it's quite interesting, isn't it? That actually, if you wound back five, six, seven years, that that term well-being, it wasn't really being used a lot, was it? Whereas now, it's just kind of come through into all of our consciousness because of the fact that everyone's talking about it uh, from the government down and, that, and that's brought with it a whole host of um, issues you know some of the work i've been doing with the engaged success um, and some of the research we've done internally um, at, at my employer benefits we've started to realize that actually the sheer volume of providers in the market is causing a huge amount of confusion and that confusion risks a certain amount of apathy so actually if the problem looks too big actually how am i going to, should i even start completing that and part of what we're doing with the gains for uh, engaged success is to look at actually people are already on that well-being journey whether they know it or not you know if you pay people fairly if you're offering flexible working you're already doing some of the key things that will help make people feel uh, better in their lives and and better to cope with the ups and downs of life um but i think from a provider point of view we've got clients telling us and people that many people have spoken to even in the last week who tell me they go into conferences and there's 150 providers and actually how do they start to cut through that noise how can you know about in most companies a relatively small hr reward team suddenly start kicking the tires of every provider in the market just to make an assessment over which ones are going to be best um so i think it's it's no surprise therefore that you know this week i read that less than 50 percent of companies have uh, a well-being strategy and if you're an sme it's kind of less than about 15 or 20 percent um, because actually it looks like quite a big mountain to climb if you haven't already started that journey well i, th I think that that early majority and late majority so that big kind of rump of the market one of the characteristics of them as a buyer is that they do rely on their trusted advisors to guide them through and i think companies um, like benefex you over the next couple of years are going to have a lot of organizations who who fit that characteristic coming to you and saying what do we do and it, i guess it's your role to educate them on the market and and to help them devise and then implement that strategy and it's, it's really interesting i think there is a there is a job for people who could just uh meet those providers critically assess them digest all the research conduct all the research and then actually sit in front of clients and do some really good well-being consultancy which kind of says look this is the type of organization you are this is where you want to be this is what the research is telling you this is what i think you should be doing um i think that well-being consultancy work from all the probably kind of major consultants in this space is probably going to boom quite significantly over the next couple of years yeah i think you're absolutely right Definitely, but I have to say that you have to trust the advisor or whoever that, that consultant is that, that they're motivated in the right way. So uh, what you find in other markets is that there's this thing called pay to play, which basically means that in order for you to be a provider to be included on this panel, you basically have to pay in order to for the research to be done on you. And, it, it, you know, for me, that that is isn't right um so you really you need to make sure that even at the kind of trusted advisor level that they're motivated by the right by the right things
And I think that's a really important point. You know, I've, I've talked before about how I don't think you can have trust in an organization and have a good well-being um, strategy. I think trust and well-being in all its forms um, come hand in hand, you know, to have a really good employer-employee relationship. You know, that's like any relationship we have in our lives. It's founded quite heavily on trust. And, and I think that well-being piece is really important as well. I think financial services has obviously been hammered by trust you look at the Edelman trust barometer for the last couple of years and financial services is performing yeah. really bad as you'd expect you know we've seen uh, plenty of uh, major financial institutions make some mistake that has had a significant effect on on the UK in particular um, and so I think that's a really valid point as well that when you're looking at particularly financial well-being providers is is who you can trust and what they're telling you is correct and that you can build a good relationship with them and, and believe um, everything that they're telling you. So I, I have to say that, that I'm really glad that you uh, pointed that out. Any, any listeners, um, you'll be fascinated if you go and search up the Edelman Trust um, barometer. It's a really, really useful thing to read every year. Um, so, for example, a few years ago, you know, financial services that it was at its absolute nadir of, of trust and tech was way, 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 you know, the most trusted. But actually, as a consequence of some of the stuff that's happened with big tech um, over the last uh, year or so, actually, that that trust in that big tech is waning as well. So it's, you know, where do people turn to for their trust now? We, we are living in a world, a very, very cynical um, time uh, in in the world at the moment, and so again, you know, have, having that organisation that you can really trust to do the right thing for you is imperative for us, you know, for a nurture of benefits to get across in our brand values, and even for the employee at the end, I guess you know that um, that trust in financial institutions has obviously um, taken a dive. Um, we talked before about money being a really emotive subject. Therefore, if I'm going to follow the even not just the advice but the education somebody's given me i need to believe that comes from a trusted source because i need to in a, in a world of fake news need to implicitly believe that if i'm reading a blog or i'm reading a piece of content that somebody's sending me i've got to be able to believe that without having to kind of go and test whether that information is correct because obviously a huge amount of people's financial well-being problems are driven by the fact that they just don't have the time or the inclination to go and research all the products and find out all the things they need to do. So when you bring that information to you, I guess, especially at Nudge, when you're bringing some of those information, bits of information and actions to employees, they've got to trust you because they're not going to follow through with what you need them to do or what you want them to do. They need to know, you, you know, you need to know when you go into uh, an organisation, you know, like, I think it's a fair comment to say that you go into a big law firm, you've got some cynical people there. You need to make sure that when people go and do some digging about you as an organisation, there is genuinely nothing fine there, you know, that your motivations are whiter than white. And I think that that will be the challenge with some of those companies you were alluding to earlier on, where they're they're hiding their motivations behind some kind of flashy marketing. That actually, when it lands with the employees, that they you know they're not going to have the wall pulled over their eyes. They're gonna they're gonna find out, and that's going to cause headaches for the HR team. Um, and just one final point I want to discuss with you before we kind of wrap up this episode. Um, Nudge produces some really interesting research. Um, what are the big trends that you're seeing this year and what instinctively do you think you're going to start to see in kind of 2020 and beyond? 
Yes, so I hope you don't mind me doing a a very small plug, um, but we're releasing our next piece, The Great Wellbeing Myth, next week. Um, And you're... um, I know you're coming along to talk on, on on the panel, so you'll you'll be the first to see it, and then it's going out to the wider market um, on I think the 14th of October. So, so, so what is this big myth that we're looking to dispel? Is is quite pertinent actually, uh, based on what we've talked about today. It's that financial well-being is a product or service. Oh, we're a financial well-being company. No, you're not. You're a company that's selling ISAs or loans or, you know, whatever it might be. And and actually, for us, we think that financial well-being is actually a state of being that's different for every single person and constantly changes based on the micro and macro factors that are affecting them. So there are a couple of, um, without wanting to give away too much, so there's kind of dozens of these myths that, that we dispel. But a couple of really interesting ones that came out of an analysis of uh, the data of about 350,000 people. So one of them is about millennials, that they're all the same and that they think the same. And that is absolutely not correct. So the, there are massive variances on financial interest based on industry earnings and, and where they live. And, and it's very clear that it's the circumstances, not the age that's the greater influence. And then another, to just give you kind of one one more snapshot, is that men and women think differently. And that isn't actually necessarily correct. The biggest contributor is earnings. So the more the females earn, the more they take on so-called male characteristics like risk-taking and interesting and interest in things like tax and investment. The challenge is that there aren't enough high-earning females. So as a consequence, that's why there is this perception that, that, that men and women think differently. It's actually about the earnings gap rather than because of their actual innate characteristics. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a few bits like that that I think are fascinating. Uh, I think that that women in finance piece is uh, women and finances rather um, is really, really interesting. Uh, um, I was asked to guess right from a, a HR magazine fairly recently and I wanted to do some topics on financial well-being. I wanted to talk about the financial well-being of women in particular. Um, and I was told that uh, financial well-being isn't really resonating with the HR readers, um, but push forward and managed to convince them that I'd write this article. Um, and it ended up being one of the most read uh, that month and this year. Um, and it, lots of people reached out to me, even UN women reached out to me on the back of that uh, article. And I think that's a really big issue that is kind of going largely unsolved is you know, there is a pay gap, obviously. Um, there's a pensions gap. There's an advice gap. And um, women aren't getting the attention they deserve when it comes to financial well-being because they've been, we've put them on the back foot for so long. Um, so I think any research around that kind of stuff is really interesting because um, you know, even some of the research that I found showed that women don't get as much workplace financial well-being or financial education as their male counterparts, largely because things like care and responsibilities mean they miss workshops and that kind of stuff. So I think that's probably going to start to be for people like yourselves can be really interesting because all of a sudden you have a financial well-being tool that can be accessed from home. It's not relying on uh, a white man in his 50s to come and give you a mortgage talk and that kind of stuff. It's actually making this content more accessible to what it's like to be a human in 2019, which I think is interesting. 
Definitely, and, and companies in the whole, so, you know, not wanting to kind of label every organisation, are still shockingly poor at giving, um, at, at allowing female women, females to flourish in, in their environment, uh, be that the kind of, you know, so-called flexibility, be that the fact that people are actually having to squeeze five days' work into three, et cetera, et cetera. So, no, no, very few of the companies um, that even talk about it, I think, do, do a good job at the moment. Excellent. So just to round up, I've been asking every guest about their own well-being. Um, and as we're on the topic of financial well-being, could you tell us what the best financial decision you've ever made personally is? Yeah. Okay. So, well, it's, it's not one that I personally recommend because it could have turned out very differently. Um, but at the height of the financial crisis in 2009, my wife and I made the decision to massively stretch ourselves mortgage and, and money-wise with a, with a new home. You know, people forget, you know, it was complete chaos then. Um, but, you know, we got a, a great deal because the owner needed to sell. Uh, everyone else was too nervous to commit. And interest rates have stayed low for a decade, so that that's worked out pretty well. And it was actually the first Baron Rothschild who said uh, famously, "Invest when there's blood on the streets," and I think that there is some truth to that. It's, it's interesting when I bought my um, when I bought my home. My father's advice to me was, uh, "Stretch yourself as far as you can. You will never regret just pushing yourself as much as you can." Um, and I think that's really interesting. A second piece of advice is always, whenever you bought a computer, always buy more memory than you think you need, which I think is probably the same advice. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that was that's interesting that you say that. That was kind of my dad's advice to me, was as much as you can afford and then push yourself a little bit further, um, which is uh, interesting. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Um, if anyone wants to find out more about Nudge, you can go to www.nudge-global.com. As Jeremy said, there's lots of new research coming out. By the time you're listening to this podcast, that research will be out. So we'll put links in the show notes for you to be able to follow to find that research. Um, and you can also visit the website. Uh, Jeremy, Bean, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Gethin. Join the workplace wellbeing discussion online by tweeting your thoughts and questions to at World of Good Book. Thank you to my guest today and thank you for listening.